Please remain standing as you are able for the reading of God's word. The text from this morning is from Genesis chapter 4, verses 8 through 16. I will be reading in French. The English text will be on the screen as I read. Cependant, Cain adressa la parole à son frère Abel. Mais comme ils étaient dans la chambre, Cain se jeta sur son frère Abel et le tua. L'Éternel dit à Cain, « Où est ton frère Abel ?» Il répondit, « Je ne sais pas. Suis-je le gardien de mon frère ?» Et Dieu dit, « Qu'as-tu fait La voix du sang de ton frère crie de la terre jusqu'à moi. » Maintenant, tu seras maudite de la terre qui a ouvert sa bouche pour recevoir de ta main le sang de ton frère. Quand tu cultiveras le sol, il ne te donnera plus sa richesse. Tu seras errante et vagabonde sur la terre. Quand dit à l'Éternel, mon châtiment est trop grand pour être supporté. Voici, tu me chasses aujourd'hui de cette terre. Je serai caché loin de ta face. Je serai errante et vagabonde sur la terre. Et quiconque me trouvera, me tuera. L'Éternel lui dit, Si quelqu'un tua Cain, Cain serait vengé sept fois. Et l'Éternel mit en scène pour Cain pour que quiconque le trouverait ne le tua point. Puis Cain s'éloigna de la face de l'Éternel et habita dans le, la terre de Nod, à l'Orient d'Eden. This is God's word. Our Father, we come to you now and as we approach your word, we come with humility, we come with awe, knowing that these are not just any words, but the words of life. We thank you that they are understandable to us, that we can hear them in our own language, whether it be French, like we heard this morning, or English, or whatever is the language that we grew up with, knowing in our heart, and we thank you that you speak to us. Uh, that it doesn't have to be in the Hebrew and the Greek, but it can be in the language that we know. We thank you that you have uh, revealed to us all that we need to know for life and godliness. And we pray this morning that the words we hear would enlighten our hearts and minds, that you would use your spirit to grow us up. And we thank you for the year that you have given us as we think of this New Year's Eve day. We look back and we just scratch our heads at how you brought us to today. And we are grateful. Some, some of us are struggling. Uh, we um, just, in any situation of our life, we pray that you would remind us of the, your grace and your kindness to us. Um, and as we look forward to a new year, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, as we look at our passage, now we just read from chapter 4, but we're going to actually kind of cover three chapters, two and a half. Um, and so we'll look at the story of Cain and Abel, but then we'll look on some future generations from Cain and Abel all the way down to, I guess you could say Noah, but mostly Noah's next time. So, and there's two main things I want you to be looking for. And the first is, the title that we have for the sermon, Sin Spreads. That's pretty simple, but the story of how sin spreads, it's important for us to see. It's not just kind of here or there, sin and then its consequence, death, is everywhere. Every person we see in our story this morning, 
And every person that we could read about that, I'm not going to say their names because we're not going to read a genealogy this morning, is corrupted by that sin, that spread of death. You know, some people talk about total depravity, but I always like to talk about pervasive depravity. Depravity is everywhere. There's no way to avoid it. There's not a human who is immune from this pervasive spread of sin. You can think of even your life today and think of the people in your life. Think of your own soul, your own life up to this point, and you say, yeah, actually, that's true of me too. There's no way that I couldn't not sin. If we're going to use some double negatives here. The second thing I want you to overhear is what Moses is hinting at. One of the best things about Hebrew storytelling is that the most important thing in the story is what's not said, oftentimes. And so you have to learn to read between the lines. Kind of like my family, we always kind of read between the lines about how people are feeling. We're too empathetic as Andersons. And then we feel bad, and then we feel bad about people feeling bad. And this is, we had Christmas this week, so we really felt it. <sighs> I won't tell any stories right now about that but you can ask me later. Um, it wasn't bad. It was just bad. It's, and it was my problem too. Right? But you have to read between the lines. And we have to see what it is that Moses is hinting at. And I think he wants us to be looking for an answer to this sin problem. And he wants us to see how God is at work in this sin problem. So you can look at Cain, you can look at Lamech, who we'll talk about, the first Lamech, not the second. We'll, we'll look at even the little bit, the sons of God, and we'll say, well, where is their hope? What is God doing here? What is his answer to this? And there's this rich tapestry that Moses has woven throughout the story of Genesis to help us get meaning that I think he intends for Israel in the wilderness, but also for us today. He's preparing us to anticipate the need for salvation and and honestly to anticipate Jesus, the coming of the Christ, who would answer that problem of sin. So that's the sermon this morning. The plan is just to kind of go through three movements. The first is to look at Cain and his descendant Lamech. And then the second movement is we'll see we'll go a lot faster through these second two movements, is to see the spread of death even in the genealogy of Seth. And then finally, we'll see the corruption of creation in chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. So let's look first at that Cain and Abel story. After Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden to the east of Eden, right? Interestingly, we read the wise men come from the east to the West to find the answer to the problem. I thought that was cool in the song today. Um, after Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, we lose track of time. So you start in chapter 4 and you're like, okay, so what's happening here? Well, we get three words and we, we move 60 years along. Moses doesn't really care about the, the, chronology, the timing here because what he wants us to focus on is the main point. And the main point, the main event, it centers around the death of Abel. So he compresses that conception, birth, and growing uphood. 
those monumental years when we think of our own lives into just a few words to preach something else, something really specific. Now, as we read any Hebrew narrative, we have to think about, well, what is that specific thing that he's preaching to us? Genesis, the whole rest of the Bible is written to preach. It's not just, it's to preach to God's people. It's not anything other, it is some other things, but it's also that. And what is that? There's a few hints, and we have to take these hints uh, pretty clearly. When something seems to be missing, we say, well, what is that all about? So, for instance, the first tent we see is that Cain gets a name, and we see why he's named what he's named. But then we see that Abel is given a name, but he's not, we don't hear why he's named that name. This is our first hint. This is where we can read between the lines. He's almost begging us to fill in the story just with this naming of these boys. So, just so you know, since we don't all speak Hebrew here, Abel means breath or vanity. So if you read Ecclesiastes 1, vanity of vanities, that's Abel's name. Probably. I mean, it's the same spelling and everything. So, it also could have some long-lost etymology to shepherd, but probably I think it's referring to this word vanity, breath of air. So now we can't, we, Moses asks us, what, is, what does Abel mean? What does Abel mean? What does Hevel mean? It means puff of air, transient, vain, empty, gone, here today, gone tomorrow. And then Cain, he's born first, and he's named, he says... Eve says, I have gotten a man with the help of God. It's this pride, boastful pride, and almost not in a bad way from Eve. You can imagine her, the first woman ever to give birth through this pain, toil, and everything else that happens in birth. She says, wow. And yet, even though she, I don't want to imply that she's sinful in saying this, there's this hint that maybe there's this pride coming in Cain. She says, I took life by the horns, I wrestled it, and I won it, and I got this baby. I feel like every woman probably feels the same way after birth. It's the first human experience of birth. It's a victorious name. And Cain, too, is going to pursue being that victor but that pride's going to get in the way abel however is noted for being transient so the the name it's all in the names this story is abel is gone by verse 8 the second hint about the story is that we don't know the attitude of cain and abel as they offer their offering to god now everyone complains about this maybe if you read the you read the chapter 4 you're like well why don't we know how come we don't know what their attitude is? Why is God not receiving Cain's offering? Moses makes us ask this question. It's not just a mistake to leave it out. I think in the whole of the biblical story, we know the answer. And Moses knew the answer. He's just pricking our minds and hearts so that we fill in the answer. There's nothing wrong with offering a grain offering. It's one of the offerings in Leviticus. 
But there's something wrong with his heart. You read through the rest of the Torah, you know that a sacrifice is not a sacrifice without the heart. You read through the rest of the Old Testament, you see that. You read through the New Testament, and Jesus clearly teaches this. You can think of Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. I'm not going to quote it, but Jesus is speaking on the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, look, murder is not just murder when you kill somebody. It's also when you hate somebody, when you have something wrong in your heart against your brother. You know what? If you go and offer an offering, you've got to make it right with your brother before you do your offering. I think that might be one of the earliest scriptural allusions in, in the Sermon on the Mountain, chapter 5 of Matthew. Jesus knew the heart of the Pharisee. Moses, or God at least, knew the heart of Cain. And even God knows our hearts, right? And here is where things get interesting. From here on out, we hear whisperings of, okay, God calling. Cain's this way, but God's calling Cain to repentance. He's saying, look, every human after Cain needs to turn. Every human after Cain needs to flee from that sin that's crouching at the door. Now, God doesn't yell at Cain. This is what we would expect. This is a second generation. You'd think God could just fix them right there. Kind of like some people think parenting is like, well, if you just do the right parenting steps, your, your kids will turn out just fine. At least when you read books. Some, some, some books about parenting are like this. That's not how, that's not how it works. Um, but God, God doesn't yell at Cain, does he? What, he doesn't yell even at Cain like he scolds Job. If you remember Job, in Job about 38, he says, Where were you when I made everything? Do you just put the hail in the storehouses up above? Is the snow, do you let the snow come down? Job, in his maturity, could endure the rebuke of the Lord. Cain, in his immaturity, could not, probably. I'm, I'm thinking that's the case. Instead, he asks a question. Just like he asked his mother and father a question. Why are you angry? If you do well, you'll not, you'll not, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin's crouching at the door. It's desires for you. But you must rule over it. He's calling Cain to repent. He's calling Cain and saying, look, Cain, you all now, you're all enduring this life and walking through this life with sin. And you must rule over it. This is the word like a king, to rule over it. you gotta, you got to deal with it. He's calling Cain to repentance. Cain, the first son of Adam and Eve, is tempted by his own flesh, just like his parents before him. Will he fall into sin like his parents? Will he be any different? Are we any different? In our flesh, no. In Cain's flesh, no. The jealousy, the dejection that, he, he, that arises in his heart when his offering is not accepted turns toward hatred to his brother. When they're in the field, Cain rose up and killed his brother. Instead of ruling over his sin, he let it blossom into something not beautiful. 
And Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. I tell you, whoever's angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment for murder. See that hatred that was in Cain's heart brought forth death in Abel. But the hatred even in our hearts brings forth death. We are also subject to the same judgment. Cain, both in his heart and with his hands, murdered his brother. And again, the Lord comes to Cain with a question. Where is your brother? Just like he asked Eve and Adam, where are you? They were hiding in the garden. Now where is Abel, your brother? Again, the Lord's offering an opportunity to repent. Isn't this interesting? You'd think after somebody kills somebody, you you just send the police out and get them and throw them in jail. No. God approaches Cain in his place and, and calls him to repentance. God shows the path of repentance even though Cain does not receive it. He fails miserably. He says, I don't know. Do I, do I keep my brother? And in a similar way to his parents, he's cursed. He can't, the ground's not going to do anything for him. But unlike his parents, we hear his response. He says, my punishment's too much for me. If I can't till the ground, if I can't make food for myself, what am I going to do? Here you see Cain, who in his pride murdered his brother, thinking his judgment, which is less than death, is too much. Shouldn't his life have been taken away from him? Isn't anything less than that a gracious intervention? And then, a third time in Cain's life, we see God intervening in a, in a concerning and gracious, a gracious kind of concern for Cain. He invites Cain again to repent. He marks him with a sign He's in exile. He goes east of Eden, but he's preserved with a mark from God so that his relatives won't kill him in vengeance. Now, there's lots more in the story, but that's all for now for Cain. Um, We should ask ourselves, though, where's their hope? I've hinted at a few different things, but the story is pretty bleak. And the answer is this, no matter where we find ourselves, God's at work in our lives. No matter any place in the world, God is at work. And specifically in our lives, He's working what? Repentance. He's working salvation in our hearts. God knew Cain intimately, and in His intimate knowledge, He hits the pressure points of Cain's heart to reveal his sin. And in the same way, he does this with us, doesn't he? He deals with me and my sin, my way, in a way that is gracious and leads me to a place of repentance. It's God's kindness that brings you to repentance. But you know what? My family, each of my kids and my wife, God works in a whole different way. And my parents and my in-laws, I mean, oh my. You think... This is the way it has to happen for them to be fixed, right? You think we we can easily think this about anybody. I know you guys don't do this. We can think that about anybody. This is they just need to do this. They just need to do this, and yet God works in His way to bring them 
to a place of maturity in a different way than we'd ever imagine. And it, in a lot of ways, it's really beautiful, isn't it? And it's really humbling because we want to do it our way, but God does it His way. God works in us to reveal our own sinful hearts, and He calls us, repent. Turn from that sin. Put your faith in the only thing that matters, in Jesus. Instead of answering with Cain, I don't know where my brother is. Why are you asking me about this? What do we do when we're pricked? Do we admit our sin? Do we take a deep breath and confess our sin one to another? I think this, the, the whole story calls each of us who reads it to a, a position of humility. I love these words I ran into this week from somebody just about the act of confession, right? Cain ought to have confessed his sin to the Lord. We also are called to confess. And I think this, this is a beautiful picture of what confession looks like. This quote, it says, in confession there occurs a breakthrough to the cross. The root of all sin is pride. We see this with Adam and Eve. We see this, of course, with Cain here as well. I want to be for myself. I have a right to myself, a right to my hatred and my desires, my life and my death. The spirit and flesh of human beings are inflamed by pride. For it is precisely in their wickedness that human beings want to be like God. This is an allusion to Genesis. Confession in the presence of another believer. This, I think, is the answer or an unessential answer. Confession in the presence of another believer is the most profound kind of humiliation. Humiliation is the answer. It hurts. It makes one feel small. It deals a terrible blow to one's pride to stand there before another Christian as a sinner in an almost unbearable disgrace. By confessing actual sins, the old self dies a painful, humiliating death before the eyes of another Christian. But isn't that our glory, brothers and sisters? As we all are humble to one another, confessing our sins one to another, that we receive one another in Christ and we become more and more the body of Christ? I wonder if this is what we're hoping to see in Cain. And this is what I want to see in each of us. What happens when we are confronted by the Lord, by our circumstances, by the words of a brother or sister in Christ, by your spouse, by your kids? Do you defend yourself? Do you start making excuses? Well, I didn't mean to do it that way. I mean, really what I meant to do is this, but it came out this way, and I know it sounded bad, but it wasn't really that bad. Do you ignore the prick of the Holy Spirit and numb yourself over a cup of tea? See, we, we love to nurse our sins, thinking that they're the essential part of who we are. But in reality, they just need to be cut out and thrown away. I think all throughout our lives, God uses the circumstances of our lives to cut it out. And I, I think the, gracious, the glorious thing about how God works in our lives is displayed in this verse, which a, guy, a dead guy wrote a book about this. 
Isaiah, uh, from Isaiah, he said, a bruised reed he won't break. God, this is a passage in Isaiah 40-something, and God is pursuing his justice through, through, through his means, his son, I think, through the servant. God's pursuing justice. You know, you want justice to happen. And yet in that, he says, he's not going to break a bruised reed. A bruised reed, you think of like a piece of grass bruised. Well, what do you do with a piece of grass bruised? You just start tearing apart because you have fidgety fingers. But that's not who God is. That bruised reed, he's not going to break it. A smoldering wick, he's not going to put out. I just saw my dad put out a smoldering wick at a Christmas Eve service last week. He blew it out and he's like, God doesn't do that. Smoldering wick, he's going to tend to. As he's pursuing justice in the whole world, he's going to do it in a way that does not harm the weak. And we see this beautiful picture in Cain, in the story of Cain. Now, we're not told that Cain turns from his pride or his anger, but we are told that God didn't break Cain in his anger. How much more will he treat you and me kindly? We who are called by his name, sealed with his spirit, won't he deal with us in an understanding way? Now, we could just be done there, but we have a few more chapters to go. Let's quickly consider Cain's descendant Lamech because we get the same picture. In, beginning in chapter 4, verse 19, we get the end of Cain's line. There's this guy named Lamech, and we get a poem from him. Now, he was a seventh generation from Cain, the perfection of Cain's descendants. And from him, material culture proliferates, including Jubal, who somebody named their kid Jubal in this church. Jubal, he comes up with uh, the lyre and the pipe. Isn't that great? Those who play strings and flutes. There's beauty here. His sons are craftsmen and musicians. And part of, part of why that's important is that it's showing that it's not the gods who made musicians and craftsmen. Instead, it is from a gift from God through these human peoples. All the other pagan religions say, you know what, Apollo made the flute, or I actually can't tell you who made what, but you know, Marduk did this, Sin did this, right? No, no, it's actually God through human, human ingenuity made these things. But Lamech himself also displays this pervasive depravity that I mentioned. His words are cryptic, but the meaning is clear. I think what he says in his poem is more of a warning than anything else. He's like Cain, but ten millionfold. He says, hey wives, listen to me. I killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. In other words, somebody said this. He, he's saying he feels he is in his own security. I'm safe here in my own power. You cut me, I'll, I'll kill you. He can handle any difficulty with his mis or mistreatment adequately by himself. 
Lamech didn't learn any devotion to God from his grandpa Cain's life. Instead, he followed Cain's footsteps and his pride and proclaims his atheism. You see that sin here reverberates and reverberates and gets bigger and bigger and more and more destructive. Lamech is in charge of his whole life, and it's not good. Is there any hope for Lamech? Here's the question again. I, I don't think so. But again, these words instruct us about the importance of cultivating a humble heart. As beautiful as the cultural achievements of the city are, of metalworking is, of even music, music is great, right? Apart from true worship, they're vain. It's ironic. Here's another thing about Abel's name. It's ironic that Abel's name means vanity when, in fact, it's his brother whose descendants produce vanity and vindictiveness. As though we humans always and forever should fight to make my justice here, right now, done. Instead, we should remember the hard attitude that Jesus teaches, shouldn't we? Again, Jesus teaches us, no, instead of fighting to make my justice here and now right, when Peter asks, well, how am I supposed to, what am I supposed to do? Am I even supposed to forgive my brother like seven times? And in an ironic reversal of Lamech, Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 77 times. After these two depressing figures, we come to the end of chapter 4 and then 5. It's in these chapters we realize that humble devotion to Yahweh is not enough. If Cain and Lamech hint at, well, maybe you just need to worship God, and that'll be the solution. Chapter 5 is saying, look, even Seth's line, the, the godly line, the line that calls on the Lord, it's not enough either. It was with Seth in chapter 4, verse 26, that they start calling on the name of the Lord. But the hard thing is that death lingers in the genealogy. We see in every, every verse, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died for ten generations, seven, or maybe nine generations. I don't know how it's counted if Noah is number ten. You see, Abel was on to something when he offered blood sacrifice. Nothing made things right with, between God and man. And like the blood of Abel called out for vengeance, so humanity's sin called out for a remedy. This family walks with God. The seventh generation even, Enoch, walked with God and he was not. And yet... We didn't solve death. Now you wonder why Moses included this note about Enoch in uh, verse 24 of chapter 5. When everyone else in the, end, in the family line ends up dying, hope can seem to wither. It seems to me that Moses reminded Israel about Enoch because he wants them to know that there's something worthwhile in life even if it seems like you're wandering around in circles in the desert. Is there hope here? You think of the, I always am astonished thinking about the Israel, Israelites in the desert. They're just there for 70 years, and they're cursed to die. What's the point? 
You wonder, was the suicide rate really high? Because it, it could make it feel like life is meaningless. And I wonder if the story of Enoch is a way for Moses to teach Israel, look, your life is meaningful if you're walking with the Lord. Even if you're wandering around the, in the desert for 40 years, even if you're going to die before you ever see the promised land, even if you're just collecting manna and quail, no hope of bacon, can a person have a fulfilled life doing nothing in that desert except those things? And I think we are challenged to ask the same question. I think from time and time, time to time in each of our lives, we say, man, I feel like I'm in this personal wilderness. Can I find meaning here right now? What am I even doing? And Enoch's life says, look, there's satisfaction in simply walking with the Lord. In the midst of the march of death, you can walk with God and be okay. And by God's gracious intervention, as we walk with God like Enoch, our forefather, we too might have a meaningful life, even if you work at the button factory. You see, the natural bent of a human is to be cynical in, in, in every stage of life. Think of a kid or youth like, man, <clears throat> I'm not there. I want to be there. I want to, I want to grow, be a grown-up and buy my own things. I want to pick my own food. I don't like onions and stuff. As a middle-aged working person, you just wish you could retire and hit golf balls upside down. And then as a retired person, it's easy to be cynical about life and be like, oh, my friends are dying. I just wish I could be young again and have my kids still with me. Right? In each area of our lives, there are temptations to struggle, to feel like your life is meaningless. And yet, in this place of suffering, in this, under the weight still of sin and death, in Christ we can walk a meaningful life. We can live with hope, with the hope of even enduring past death. Now Enoch walked with God and he was not, there's no end he died here, but I think that's preaching a hope of resurrection life that only is sealed, fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. For us to experience a resurrection life, to have that icing on the cake of walking with God, we are called to repent of that prideful sin that, that Cain and his descendants had and to walk with God. Putting your faith in the most stable thing in the world, the resurrection power of Jesus I mean, that's, that's the middle candle right there. That's a sign of the middle candle right there. Our final move in the text, which is really more of a sour note, begins in chapter 6. Like much of Hebrew narrative, the story is subtle and we have no idea what's happening. But the point is clear. It's always the case in the story. In the Bible, usually... You can have no idea what's happening, and yet you can also know that the point is this. So in chapter 6, the sons of God take, saw the daughters of men were attractive, and they take them. 
and they get married to him. And the two main ideas are either this is the sinful line of Cain intermarrying with the godly line of Seth, or it could be angelic beings come and marrying uh, humans. I'm 50-50 about which one I think it is. So I usually preach this text, and then I change my mind the next day. So last time I preached this text, I changed my mind the next day, and that's just how it's going to be. So the point of the matter is this. The corruption of the spread of sin was pervasive. By the time of this 10th generation, or whatever you want to call it, right before Noah, there's nowhere that sin didn't super corrupt things. It's deeply written on every person's soul. So much so that the devilish beings thought it was okay to join in the party. It's at this point that God chooses to send the flood to the earth. What is the answer to the spread of sin and death? What is this answer to the sons of God marrying with the daughters of men? The answer is this, flood the evil world. And that's just a reminder of what Paul teaches us in in Romans. The wages of sin is death. Yet again, we see God's offering of salvation. God's offering of hope. He preserves Noah and his family in an ark, in a boat. Second, we see after the flood, and this is going to be a lot of the sermon series of Genesis, that God is working to preserve a line to bring about salvation, to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. It's important. It's all the families of the earth. It's not just Israel. It's not just Seth's line. It's all the families of the earth. A major theme of the whole of Genesis is that humanity is saved only by the preserving power of God. We see that God hands over the line of Cain to his own sin for his own destruction. We also see that God preserves his own. He preserves a family line to bring blessing. To anywhere and everywhere, just as much as pervasive depravity is a a true thing, sin spreads everywhere. The same is true of God's preserving power, His saving power. It's not until God's blessing reaches all the families of the earth, right? In the New Testament. We're anticipating the spread of the gospel to all the nations. Not just to my people. It's to every people. Our passage this morning reminds us that sin is our biggest problem and that this sin is inseparable from our human nature and it it gives birth to death. This is really what we ought to take from these chapters. Even thinking about this Christmas tide. Did I say that right? Christmas tide? Christmas tide. Just learning these phrases. Right when Matthew, when Jesus comes as a baby, what does Matthew say this little baby's all about? God sent him to save us from our sins. And that's not just a trite saying. It's not so that we could be really build really cool buildings and not so that we could sing really great songs together as a church. It's not so that we could have a nice 
Instagrammable house and really yummy food for New Year's Eve. We can ring in the new year with hope and anticipation of the great things that are going to happen next year. No, first and foremost, Jesus came to save us from our sins. Apart from the grace of God in Christ, every cultural artifact of humanity would be bent towards destruction. Think of music. Music doesn't have to be worshipful. Instead, through the redeeming power of Christ, the music we sing together is glorious. We're joining in the chorus of the nations, praising the Lord, anticipating that day when we'll be with Him together. Without the preserving and saving power of God and Christ, the metal we dig out of the ground could just be used to make war. But look here, in this, all the metal works, except for the octopus arms, in this, in this room that make this beautiful building. Right? In this gathering, as a church, because Christ has saved us from our sins, He's making all things new. As we sing songs and declare the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning we pray that you would remind us of the glory of your redemption, even in the midst of the spread of sin. And we thank you so much for forgiveness. We thank you so much for how you work in each of us according to how a father would discipline his sons and daughters. You discipline us according to what we need, not what we deserve. We pray this morning as we participate in this communion meal, we pray that we would be reminded of the glory of our participation in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.